Welcome back, vinylers and vinylettes, and welcome to the Aberdeen Vinyl Records podcast. In this episode, we'll be very, very lucky indeed to speak to one of the PR gurus of the music industry. It's not too much to call him the Pied Piper of PR in the music industry. Previously working for one of the gigantic labels, he left, formed his own company, and many of the big artists followed him. That's testament to the man, testament to their belief in his judgment, testament to their belief in his skills, and also testament to their faith in the man himself. We've known this gentleman for years, we're privileged to do so. Great taste in music, such a wide knowledge of music, and ladies and gentlemen, let me just introduce to you, Mr. Murray Chalmers of Murray Chalmers PR. Hey Murray, how are you? How are you doing? How are we doing? I'm all right, how are you? Very good, thank you, very good. I don't know, this is where I do all my like work calls, but I don't know if it's too dark. No, it's absolutely standard. No, that's fine. Right. Yeah, uh, we're, we're probably going to just end up using audio for our purposes anyway. Okay, fine. Okay. But, it's, but it is nice to see you. <laughs> no, audio at the age of 61, that's always a welcome word. <laughs> 61? <laughs> An inspiration to us all, sir. Sorry, that wasn't me fishing for compliments, but yeah. <laughs> well, you got one anyway. <laughs> Thank you. Audio is good. Good. Excellent. Uh, have you met Lee before in the shop? Oh, yeah. There you I are. Have. Hey, yeah. a double pleasure yeah, yeah, yeah. then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a long, long time ago, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice to so, see you again. A pleasure, absolute pleasure. And cheers for, for speaking to us today. This is really cool. Yeah, it's, it's great because it's, um, like all the people we've, we've been very lucky with the people we've had oh, uh, coming on the show. Gotcha. Um, and the th- I, I just know Murray as the guy who comes in the shop, we have a blether, get some records done. We've got a mutual friend in Stuart McCannon. Uh, we have, and that's it's all very nice and low key. Yeah, yeah. And then I thought I did remember Buddy saying before he'd worked with Susie and the Banshees. That's the one that stuck in my mind. And I, I think I said to you at the time, uh, we should do a book, not meaning to spill the beans and secret stuff. But I mean, I could I, I've agented lots of books to big publishers mm-hmm. with people who've got a lot less interesting things to say than Murray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. And, uh, uh, so it wasn't until we got Murray to come on here. That I started looking at your website and everything, Murray. So because I always think just take people for, for on face value. Um, but I felt obliged to look at something to and I was absolutely gobsmacked. <laughs> There's a lot of clients. A lot of stuff, absolutely. <laughs> I'm gobsmacked at how casual Bob's been about knowing you and then basically not having a clue who you all knew and all the rest. Of it. I'm like, Jesus. <laughs> well, I think I think Bob and I always talk about people like Yoko Ono and whatever, because obviously mm-hmm. Bob's very interested in the Beatles and, and I guess whatever. But yeah, we've got a lot of other clients that, that we haven't spoken about, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. How, how did you get into the PR game, Murray? I, I got into it by complete accident. I, uh, I was living in London uh, in the early 80s and I lived in a very big um, squat in Clapham and Wow. For young, younger listeners, uh, a squat is where you can live for no money. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think it was illegal even then. Uh, it's definitely illegal now. But yeah, we had we had this huge um, big house in Clapham and we had nine people in it and nine dogs. And um, I used to play records all the time. <clears throat> I mean, we had gas and electricity and hot water and everything. It was pretty civilised. <laughs> and a record player. And one day... <laughs> One day, a guy who kind of ran the squat said to me, why are you obsessed by music? You know, you should meet a friend of mine who has got a music PR company. Because, uh, you know, I was on the dole. I didn't, didn't have any money. Um, and he introduced me to the, this guy who did have a music PR company. 
and they took me on as a unpaid. I mean, we called it then work experience, but what, yeah. an, uh, an intern. Uh, and um, so that is how I began. And just through a real luck. And in the early days, I used to leave the squat and have to run the gauntlet of the nine pretty fierce Dobermans and everything that were in the boot. <laughs> and I think I was the only one in the squat who had a job, like a normal job. <laughs> and, uh, but obviously I wasn't getting paid. <clears throat> so I used to sign on the dole every like second Tuesday or whatever. And I guess it just, I fell into it. And then I got, um, we nicked a band off of EMI because we were an independent PR company. And it was run by a guy called Alan Edwards, who's still very, very big in PR. And, you know, he was always looking out for new clients. And like, you know, if you find any good bands, then, you know, pull them in. And I didn't realize there was a way of doing things. I just thought you went <laughs> nick, nicking bands from people. I mean, I wouldn't do it now. Uh, <laughs> and we still, we nicked a band. I mean, I was very young and I was, you know, so I, I always thought the music industry would be full of really cool people. And the truth is it wasn't. Okay. And I was lucky because I just, uh, you know, I was young enough and I, I didn't really care about the music industry and the orthodox way of doing things. Anyway, we found this band and I nicked them off EMI. And I had to go around there one day to pick up some 12-inch singles um, from EMI. So I bumped <laughs> to the, the head of press there. <laughs> and uh, instead of being angry with me for stealing a band, who actually turned out not to do anything really. She offered me a job. Wow. So again, it was, it was just luck really. Um, I think cause I looked a bit freaky, you know, like in these days, everybody sort of did, uh, <laughs> except, except people in the music industry who a lot of them were like, you, you know, you would never tell that they worked in, in a profession that was creative. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was lucky. I mean, having no money and everything, you know, you had to, you had to buy secondhand clothes and all the stuff that we do when we're young. Yeah. Um, but it gave me the veneer of coolness that a <laughs> major record label must have thought might bring something. Yeah. Um, so pretty quickly I uh, got offered a, you know, a proper job that paid money. Good for you. That's uh, it's great. It always just shows you that uh, you end up doing, as you say, an internship. And, um, and I know that I have read that uh, you want you're, one of the many people that maybe doesn't approve of people working for nothing as such. But at the same time, way back in the day, it gave a route that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have got into it um, otherwise. Um, I didn't even know that that job existed, you know, talking about yeah. music all day. Um, <laughs> when, when I worked for Alan, one of our early clients was um, Dead or Alive. Oh, yeah. And there was a, like a 12-inch mega mix that they'd, uh, we were promoting. And anyway, Alan handed me a bunch of vinyl one day. It was Gregory Isaacs, Dead or Alive, I think, Rolling Stones and Brian Ferry, I think. And he was like, you know, you should listen to these because you're going to be working on them. And I went to him, oh, how much do I owe you? And he went, went, they're free, it's your job. And I was like, oh, I get free free records, you know. That's fantastic. That's absolutely brilliant. That might even cheekily lead on to another question, certainly that I've got. So you obviously must collect vinyl, whether you get it for free or not. Well, I bet you didn't get nothing free at Bob Shop. But, uh, <laughs> but you, you, does that make you an actual vinyl collector as such? Uh, or? 
Not really. I mean, when, when I moved to London, um, I left all my vinyl behind. In, no. At my mum's. Ah, but you still had it, yeah. Yeah, I had it. And funnily enough, when I lived, before we had the squat, I lived in uh, YMCA in uh, Stockwell. Yeah. And I was even then obsessed by Susie and the Banshees. And Hong Kong Garden came out in August 1978. What a tune. And uh, I bought the seven inch and took it back to my little kind of prison cell in the YMCA <laughs> and thought, I don't have a record player, but I just used to sit and look at it. <laughs> oh my God, I don't know. It's like a wee Duggett's lost his boat or something, you know? Yeah. And they had a TV room in the YMCA where you could go and hope that somebody would put on top of the pops. And, you know, I used to go down and like see um, bands on top of the pops. But anyway, yeah, I left my vinyl at home. And then uh, the very short version is that when my mum died many years later, um, I stupidly um, started going through the vinyl. And it's obviously a horrible job clearing out your mother's house, you know. And I got bored and I just, um, these guys came from a local auction house to take our furniture away. And I let them take the vinyl as well, uh, which was really dumb. But, you know, you're not really um, thinking about stuff no, no. properly. No, of um, course. So my, my teenage vinyl, I've got very little. Um, so, yeah, I had to kind of start buying it again. So what was the first record you ever bought? The, the first record I ever had not bought, um, well... It was two and it couldn't be more great in terms of working out what you liked because my very hip cousin, uh, who was older than me, gave me Electric Warrior by T-Rex and also a Moody Blues album. And very quickly I thought, I'm a T-Rex kid, not a Moody Blues kid. Yeah, very. I mean, I'm sure the Moody Blues are great, but very quickly I allied myself to Mark Boland. so that was the first record that I had. Oh, and the first one I bought uh, would have been Scylla Black. Really? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because, um, you know, Scylla became, you know, she was quite a divisive figure, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I was really, when I was young, into <laughs> Scylla Black. That's all right. Uh, it was she was huge. She was huge back then. She was. I mean, it was a very big part. Of, funny enough, I've just written about this for the column that I do for the, the Courier, but a very big part of teenage life in the early 70s was watching, you know, big shows like the Cell Black Show. Yeah. And she, she would have T-Rex on. And, you know, yeah. uh, I think it was the Lulu Lulu show. She had Jimi Hendrix on. Wow. So it was kind of incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. But, yeah, probably Scylla was the first record I actually bought. And then... Pretty much after that, it was first record I ever bought mail order was Aladdin Sane by David Bowie. Ah, oh, some good and stuff had, there. Yeah, they had like a prototype um, Amazon in these days called Comet Discount Warehouse. Oh. And you could send off from, you know, your flat in Dundee and get <laughs> David Bowie's new album sent to you. Brilliant. Bloody I didn't know hell, that. neither did no. I. That's yeah. proper unique. So, yeah, they were the memorable ones. I think them and Patti Smith Horses. Are, oh, yes, yeah. Yes. I bought it in 1975 when it came out. And yeah. I bought it in Boots in Dundee. Yeah. You might, you might remember that Boots, the chemist, used to yep. uh, sell vinyl. 
Absolutely. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Booster Chemist. Yeah. That's so yeah, weird. Yeah, we used to do books as well. And publishing, it was a big account to I have. I can imagine them selling books, but records. That was incredible. And Boots and Dundee, like when you knew a record was coming out, I guess it would be like the equivalent of a pre-order now. Yeah, wow. Like, but I would go in every week and go, is the new David Bowie album in yet? And they would go, no, it's not released till the 21st. But you would just keep going in thinking, one day it might be there. You know? yeah, 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 totally, <laughs> totally. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. You must have done yeah. a few a few trips to Woolworths as well. That was another rites of passage to go through the records in Woolworths. Yeah, Woolies was really great. Um, oh, yeah. And, yeah. And, and in Dundee, they had a, funny enough, they had a record shop called Chalmers and Joy, which I always remember the name. Uh, and there was another one where they had a remainder box. And one day they had this record remaindered in their seven inch by Arnold Corns, Hang On To Yourself. And I just didn't buy it. And of course it was David Bowie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. And it's now, I believe it's now worth a fortune. But Oh, yeah. bet. Yeah. That, that's life. But yeah, <laughs> I, I became very avidly a uh, uh, record buyer. And it sounds like Bowie was uh, a big part of your scene. Yeah, David, David Bowie kind of took over. The, the very hip kids at school um, were into Bowie very early. Like he played Dundee Caird Hall in mm-hmm. uh, 1972, I think. And I remember, it's very uncool to admit, but my mum wouldn't let me go to concerts when he played. Uh, what, what age were you, buddy? Uh, well, I was born in 59, 60, what's that, 13? 13, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 She wouldn't let me go, and all the hip kids at school were all talking about how brilliant it was. Oh. And then I kept saying to her, you've got to let me go to concerts. And the first one she let me go to was uh, Slade. Hey. <laughs> it's, it's fine, but it wasn't David Bowie. Still, it's a pretty impressive uh, first gig, I've got to say. That's totally. a great first gig. Especially, yeah. they would have been at their peak about then, would they? That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. it was an yeah. incredible gig. But with David Bowie, a lot of people my age, I mean, a lot of my friends now are similar age, and I realised that we started with um, Ziggy or Aladdin Sane, and then obviously you worked back. Yeah. Whereas I know people like Neil Tennant from Petrol Boys, who mm-hmm. was a massive David Bowie fan. He, he was into him much earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then he, he's a slightly different age. Yeah. Well, I must say, Lee, is, uh, Lee here is one of the biggest Bowie fans I've I've met whenever we get a collection in, I, 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 go, I go downstairs to have a look and see, right, let's get all this sorted out. And they're all gone. And you see, well, hang on, I thought there was more value than this. And there's a little bag in the corner with just the words Lee. You've got them pre skimmed. I'm like the morning birds getting through the little silver foil on the milk, you know? Oh, it's, a, it's incredible. And actually, the funny enough, there was a thing on TV about where Boy George was talking about his uh, 1970s. And, you know, he took out The Man Who Sold the World from the original cover and the reverence that he had when he put it on. And I totally get that. Yeah. You know, yeah. obviously the, the idea, because the record player I've got is nothing really amazing, but you could, if you wanted to, just stream music through it. Yeah. But mm-hmm. So all this stuff that you could get with your Spotify account or whatever, I choose to play on vinyl for, for a reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Part of it is the... Uh, the memories and uh, but also the um excitement of just putting the needle on the track yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely definitely um, i resisted having a record player in my flat for a long time uh in aberdeen 
just because of eight hours a day, you're listening to records all the time and it's great. You come home and then Angie says at Christmas, we're getting one. It wasn't a choice. I had. <laughs> <laughs> So we, we got a record player and I got to tell you what a find. I mean, stupidly yeah. running a record shop, be crazy about music. Always baffled me. Eh? And suddenly here we are. I get the whole thing all over again. Yeah. I get yeah. the whole thing. You know, so, you the whole thing about perception, like at one point when I've like started working with Bob and that, like, you know, before you talk about something, you have a perception in your head. Just get, I just remember catching glimpses of the guy and looking at Bob and thinking, I bet you've got like 50,000 records at home. <laughs> I bet you've got like maybe half a million records at home stashed <laughs> under the bed, holding up the fridge, something like that, you know? And then I find out he doesn't have any. <laughs> He's got a record shop full of records, but he doesn't own any personal records. I was baffled. That's kind of changed now. It's, it's interesting what you what you do bring back. I mean, obviously you bring back rumors. Yeah, but I think one of the things Murray was getting on there, you got the T Rex, and then you've got the um, David Bowie. Uh, was it? I was seventy six, seventy seven when punk came, punk came out, and we were second year at school, and it all became very tribal. Was it tribal before that, Murray? When you when you were like into Bowie, was it like people who you couldn't like Bowie if you like certain other bands? I mean, I don't know if I was just lucky, but the the school I went to, um, uh, you know, there were quite a gang of uh, hip people. Uh, sorry, this friend of mine keeps telling me to stop using the word hip because he says it betrays my age. Cool <laughs> <laughs> people. Um, yeah, there, there was a band of them, and I was on the fringes of them because I... Um, I was very androgynous at school and it wasn't because of David Bowie. It was kind of just, that's what nature did. Um, but yeah. Bowie, of course, emphasized it. Yeah. Um, so I kind of was freaky anyway without trying. So I was on the margins of the, um, the cool crowd. Um, and I never really thought about other people, what they liked. I mean, pop music then in the early 70s, it was probably um, everybody listened to the radio, everybody listened to the chart mm -hmm. run. Um, yeah. And everybody I knew was into really great. I mean, it was glam rock, basically, but it yeah. was rock. All the people that we talk about now, Roxy Music, David Bowie, Mark Boland, and Velvet Underground and whatever. Yeah. But the, the very exciting thing at school was uh, somebody got David Bowie's home address. Yeah. Uh, of course, he shared it to, I don't know, there was like six or seven of us, and we all wrote to him, and I got a letter back. Oh, what? Years later, and I've still got it, obviously, but, I, you know, it was Haddon Hall that we all sent it to, which is the famous place in Beckenham where he and Angie lived and whatever. And two years later, or maybe a year later, I got this letter back uh, with the main man envelope, which was his management company. And it was on brown paper, still is, and it was typed, but it's signed in green ink at the end. And it's incredible because in it, I mean, it's obviously he didn't write it because, uh -huh. it's about, you know, we really wish you were in the in the audience at the American shows and all that. I mean, you know, somebody's typed it for him. Yeah. But yeah. the incredible thing about it is he said to me, um, I'm really looking forward to bringing the Diamond Dogs tour to Britain. And that never happened. Ah. So to get a letter like that, and then years later, I found it. I was like, wow, he obviously intended to. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was, a, it was a lovely thing to get. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to know how my letter got to him and how, you know, how it took so long, but he did reply. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's brilliant. That's not so everybody's cool. not everybody can say they got a letter from Bowie. No, totally, no. totally. Yeah, yeah. No, it's really cool, and it's great that the uh, you know signing green ink and stuff. It was yeah, just perfect. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So when you um, you got Bowie, you've got uh, all that um, Roxy music and T Rex. That was, seems like it was a kind of forerunner of, or, or certainly an inspiration for a lot of punks. Yeah, Dundee at the time. Um, they used to have bands at the art college and, and the Sex Pistols played here uh, very early, I think 75, definitely 76. Uh, I didn't go to that. But um, Dundee, probably like a lot of Scottish towns, was quite divisive. You had a lot of hard rock on yeah. and in clubs you would go and it would be Led Zeppelin and stuff like that. And then, of course, I can't remember going to, when I started going out, hearing glam rock out because Dundee was quite an authentic in inverted commas place for music and obviously hard rock fulfilled that probably better than a lot of glam but when punk came along um, funnily enough in Dundee when they announced the Anarchy concert the one friend at school who agreed to go with me um, uh, because nobody else would go I was, I was panicking going we better get these tickets really quickly and I ran down to the Care Hall box office and, you know, said to the woman, am I in time? And she went, do you want to go in the front row? You know, like, no one's bought, no one's bought any tickets for this. <laughs> <laughs> funnily enough, my, I mean, this was like the first day they went on sale. But yeah, I yeah. like that. And then, funnily enough, my friend Ewan um, wouldn't go in the front row because he would like, he was like, the pistols all spit on us. <laughs> like, well, will you go in the second row? You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's brilliant. Oh my God. Many, uh, people, many people. But the concert never happened, obviously. Of of that. Why did the Diamond Dogs tour not happen? I think that uh, when he did it in America, it was a very elaborate tour, you know, um, the staging of it. And he changed it halfway and made it like a soul tour and stripped it down for whatever reason. Probably it must be a nightmare for everybody around him. Yeah, mm-hmm. but Diamond Dogs tour didn't exist for very long. Yeah. yeah, but at one point he obviously did think I'll bring it to Britain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then of course you, get, you had this uh, Berlin period as well. So you got Low, uh, you've got Heroes. Was that uh, too, was that kind of departure that you enjoyed as a fan? Yeah, I loved it. And I um, by then, because I was quite an elitist kind of punk, I mean, it's horrible to admit it, but, you know, <laughs> uh, if you followed the Banshees, which I did, like, a, you know, like gods, um, you kind of got turned on to a lot of things through them. Mm-hmm. And when Low and Heroes came out, I remember Susie made a pronouncement. Because uh, at the time, you could send off for a free Clash single from the NME, Um Capital Radio and something else. And Susie was very disdainful about that and said, uh, thankfully, everybody wasn't rushing to get this free class single, so they didn't miss out on low, you know, which... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Although I liked The Clash, I was... Yeah, I I kind of thought... I liked all her kind of elitist pronouncements anyway, so it kind of... Yeah, yeah. Uh, But yeah, I loved every time of David Bowie up until... um, I mean, it's such a cliche now, but obviously they were... He, he had a string of albums that nobody could ever match. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And then it, it, it didn't go wrong until quite late. Yeah. But yeah. Um, until uh, Scary Monsters, probably, I was, uh, you know, I was in the fan club. Yeah. Long. 
What about uh, Let's Dance? That's another one that's... Uh, my sister says that's the last good Bowie album. Yeah, I quite like it as mm-hmm. well. I mean, again, I prefer the more extreme ones. And, you know, I can't... Uh, it's funny how things really upset you. You know, I look at him now. <laughs> he was selling millions of records and on EMI and all that. But he had yellow hair and he just looked so terrible. <laughs> I thought, David Bowie shouldn't look terrible. You know, it's just... Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. He yeah. doesn't. Um and I think probably he was on record as saying that that whole commercial period, welcome as it must have been, because it gave him some money, uh, wasn't his most creative. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But I think of, of the three albums, uh, Let's Dance was the best of them. Obviously. Yeah, yeah. Because, of course, he got kind of got scammed out of a lot of money from his first several albums. So maybe that's the justification for doing that one, because that, that one came out in 1980, produced by Niall Rogers, and it was yeah. his biggest selling success but maybe that was just a necessity to recoup some money that he's just not made over the decades you know yeah I'm sure it was I mean I, I obviously I didn't work there at the time but when he yeah. did the deal with EMI there was a huge press conference which he attended to announce this mega deal yeah and I guess you know this is all my perception but it was his way of getting some money back yeah yeah and maybe yeah. he wanted to be more mainstream who knows yeah yeah and when uh, you were getting into the PR thing yourself, um, what kind of what kind of bands were you really uh, proud to represent uh, in the early days? Uh, in in my first job, it was incredible because Alan Edwards flung you in into it. I mean, in a way that I could never think about now. Like the first week, I had to call up Mick Jagger. <laughs> in your uh, first week, yeah. <laughs> in person, I, you had to call him. Him, yeah, not his manager. Yeah, no, him. Alan Alan was like, you're going to call Mick Jagger and you're going to get him to do this new TV show that Gary Crowley has started, um, which was a very credible show at the time. And Alan said, and I'm going to be listening in to you on the, on the extension. Uh, but I wasn't worried about it because I know it sounds, I mean, I, I would be now, obviously, because uh, I, I love a lot of the Stones now. But at the time, I was so, like, wanky and elitist. I just thought, <laughs> oh, if it was John Lydon or Susie, I'd be really nervous. But I wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. And I called him up and Jerry Hall answered the phone. And, uh, you know, I said, it's it's Murray from Alan Edwards' office. And on he came. And he did the show. He did that. So, uh, you know, I guess Alan thought I'd done, done my job because he agreed to do the show. Fantastic. Yeah, really. So, yeah, that was, like, the first week. And then the other memorable thing was... Uh, Gregory Isaacs came into town and they told me I had to look after him. Maybe they gave me the, you know, quite testing things. And anyway, Gregory Isaacs fell asleep in the middle of the interviews. <laughs> no way! <laughs> I didn't know what to do. I mean, you know. Uh, <sighs> so I just, I think I sent everybody home and said, you know, we better fix them up for another day. Uh, <laughs> Were you there in person? Were you in the same room together? Yeah, we were in the hotel. And he just snoozed on you. And I I never sit in on interviews. You know, I I always introduce people and then leave them. And, and, you know, I'm outside. And I remember it was a journalist called Jack Barron from Sounds magazine, which was the music paper, came out and said, mate, I don't know what to do because he's fallen asleep. Wow. (laughs) He was looking. looking, You know, he was looking to me, the PR, to sort out. And I thought, I don't know what to do either. Self-fire alarm. So yeah, we had we had clients like that. Um, but in terms of it probably wasn't until 
I got my job at EMI that I kind of had a chance to really get to know uh, clients properly. Because yeah. when you work for Alan, Alan was a very big name in PR. Sure. And so all the clients were really his clients. And, yeah. you know, you'd get like Ava Cherry, who was David Bowie's backing vocalist, would come in to have lunch with Alan. And, and I would just think, this is like on another level. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas yeah. when I got to EMI, I realized that lunching with people was part of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Sure. And also they gave me an expense account. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, God. <laughs> but then, it meant that I could forge a relationship uh-huh, uh-huh. based on me, not somebody else. And yeah, that, yeah. that was when I, um, the first new band that I worked on who became big were Petro Boys. Yeah. Um, and they were, I guess I met them in 85, just after I'd started. So that was yeah. maybe your first big, first big break, would you say? Yeah. And equally theirs? And theirs, of course. Huh? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, they. Um, we went for lunch with the head of press. I was like the junior PR or something. And Neil and Chris and myself realised that we, had, you know, we went to a few clubs that in, in common and stuff. Uh, and we liked a lot, a lot of the same music. Uh, so she let me work on them. And then it just happened that I guess I just kept doing it and they got to number one. Um, mm-hmm. And it was really lucky for me because everybody thinks, you know, they had a master plan or they were, uh, because Neil had worked here as a journalist, they thought that they they knew everything. But I don't, it wasn't that. I just think they were very smart and they knew exactly what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. It wasn't mm-hmm. manipulating the media or having an answer of how to be famous. It was just like they knew what they didn't want to do. And yeah. that, taught, that taught me a lot. Yeah. yeah. They taught me a lot. Brilliant. I, mean, I, I learned through them, really. Yeah. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> Many of us still feel like Yeah, that. definitely. Every <laughs> day. I used to hide in my office at EMI. I had my own office, which I didn't believe. You had a fridge in there stocked with wine and an expense account. And I just <laughs> to come in and think, I'm going to be found out today. And I would close the door. <laughs> and I would come out at lunchtime and go and get a sandwich and go back and then go home. that's amazing best job in the world but there's a lot of people feel like that in different jobs oh yeah Um, yeah i've I've known like big lawyers and and stuff who've all felt exactly the same thing they've said one day i'm going to get found out yeah yeah yeah. it's it's of course they're not being found out they're just doing the right thing but sometimes their confidence Uh is always there you know yeah and what you don't realize when you're young and you're in a new profession is that things that you think are detrimental like you know you've just moved down from Scotland and, you know, you're living in a squat and you don't know how the music industry works. They actually turn out to be attributes. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Which I only really realised afterwards because yeah. you're not, you're not some wanker that feels like uh, you're entitled to it all. Yeah, or, totally. You know, Oh God, another famous person. You know, I never thought that. Yeah. I was always really thrilled. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting coming at it from that original mm-hmm. angle. It really is. So um, for the sake of our listeners who maybe aren't in PR, if someone said to you, what does being PR for, in the music industry involve? If let's say you have got a band and you're going to make them famous, what do you do? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you, um, I mean, obviously a lot of the people that I work with now, because I've done it a long time. I, yeah. I, are people who are established. If yeah. it's a brand new band, I mean, when I've moved back to Scotland, I did try and help a few a few uh, new bands, you know, um, 
you have to get a fix on them as people. Yeah. Very quickly, yeah. I think, to work out because there's no set way of doing it, especially right now where the media is all over the place. You know, sure. it's different mm-hmm. to the way it was. Yeah. So you have to work out where they're coming from, what they want, what's going to be a good avenue for them to be able to talk about their creativity or whatever. Sure. Um, I mean, in the early days when, when I started, there were four music papers, you know, and you literally, you'd have them fighting for people to be in them and on the front sure. cover. It's sure. not like that now. So you have to work out what they've got that's unique to them. Yeah. Are, are they comfortable with you uh, selling parts of that? Yeah. And work out the lines that they are comfortable with. And then just from your knowledge or whatever, which journalists are going to be into it. I mean, it's not rocket science. Sure. Mm-hmm. I, mean, sure. I, I always think that it's, it's, a lot of it is intuitive and a lot of it is getting on with people. Sure. Which, you know, hopefully most of us do, but it's somehow turning it into, I think you have to build up trust with the media. Yeah. Quite often you could ring them and they'll, one, they'll take the call, uh, but two, they'll think, oh, if Murray likes this or, you know, if Barbara Sharon likes this, um, it's probably worth listening to. Yeah. And I'm not yeah. saying that is the case, but that's what you want to, strive for sure yeah yeah sure. yeah um, so yeah you you meet people you kind of um work out a plan and um then just go for it really um but it's always about getting empathetic journalists together sure there's no point in putting somebody in a band in with the wrong person that's gonna yeah mm-hmm, them or mm-hmm. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. But yeah, well, sorry, that's not very useful. But that, no, I think it's yeah. extremely useful. No, definitely. Extremely useful. Can I even ask you? It's 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 a sidestep and extension of that question. Um, it's I was going to ask you what you kind of, and not personally, but what you thought about Jerry Cinnamon, and and in particular, what I mean by that is the guy's self-managed, he's self-produced, he's put himself on his own label, he doesn't do any interviews unless he gets in touch with somebody and says, I want to do an interview. Um, his, his missus is his manager. You kind of get a reply or a response. And effectively what you've got now is a guy that has somehow made it to be so big. I mean, he can fill uh, full-on stadiums with one acoustic guitar, no band and nothing else. Yeah. And he's got no manager, no PR, no nothing, no label. I know it's incredible. What do you make of that? It sounds counterintuitive. It It is, yeah, yeah. totally. I think it's really great because I think that anything that, that, um, I mean, having been in the music industry for quite a long time, Mm -hmm. and obviously geographically I'm 500 miles away from where a lot of it is is based, but one thing I realised is that a lot of the stuff that people worry about is quite peripheral. Uh uh Um, And, you know, some it's worked for him and it's worked for quite a few people and mm-hmm. I love it because I think if you can strip away a lot of the extraneous stuff yeah and just not um not have distractions like that I mean we work with a lot of big artists really big artists <laughs> some of them have got managers some of them don't even have a manager but what I find is the ones that I get on the best with have got a very strong sense of what they want yeah. So that actually, if you didn't need to go through their manager or you didn't have time to, you could just text them and they would text you back. Mm-hmm. And so that's a kind of similar situation, but at that level where they've got such a clear idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's easier to go to them and just say to them, I mean, I do that a lot. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Save time. 
Sure. Uh, just like, you know, text them and they'll text back. Yeah. yeah. And I think people really like that because a lot of the peripheral stuff, obviously it can be very useful, but sometimes it can get in the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's like absolutely. if you want something done, yeah. you know, quite often it's better to just do it yourself. Yeah, totally. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm all for it. I mean, if ultimately it, it happened with everyone that would do us out of a job, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, PR is still needed for uh-huh. artists, you know. I mean, Lily Allen, who we worked with for a long time, um, she did most of it herself. She had management. Oh, social people. media, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But actually the, the role at the time of a PR for her was um, guidance and without being pretentious, a, a kind of barrier or a gate mm-hmm. for the tabloids. Yeah. Um, so although she was very autonomous and very much knew what she wanted to do, you know, someone couldn't be expected to take calls from the Daily Mail 10 times a day accusing yeah. you of something. And, yeah, yeah. You yeah. Know, so you do, in certain times, you do need people around sure. you. Sure. Sure, absolutely. And I've noticed that one of the other artists that you've worked with is uh, somebody who's very popular in our shop. Her records always sell out, usually to you. (laughs) And that's Kate Bush. Kate, yeah. Well, yeah. So there's a lot of people uh, come into our shop, would love to uh, know more about Kate Bush. Well, there's something, if I can add to that, something so interesting about that. If I've got it right, if I've got my my maths right, it was 35 years after the last live performance that she did. And then she approaches you to do that phenomenal run of live shows that she did. What was it, 2014? Yeah, we. I mean, we did work with her already, but but we did. Ah, right, yeah. We, 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 we did announce these shows and stuff. But yeah, we worked. we worked with her already. Um, well, I think we worked. In fact, I remember it was here in this house at Fife that she called me. <laughs> her, um, a guy who knows her and and uh, works with her sometimes, bumped into me in Universal Records and said to me, "You know, I've got a new client. I want to put you away." <laughs> and I assumed it was a new band, so I was like, "Okay, cool. Send me the music." And then there was ages when he was dithering, not telling me, and then he went. Oh, you know, the, the client's Kate Bush. And, uh, oh, wow. Oh, I thought you meant like a brand new band. And, uh, <laughs> and then she, she called me up here. I was upstairs and um, we spoke for quite a long time. And uh, I think that was 10 years ago or something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, we were around before the shows were a nice book. Yeah, and announcing the shows was incredible because um, it didn't leak. And, and usually... Yeah, yeah. Somebody is going to leak this, and they didn't. We drank a bottle of champagne, not me and her, me and my uh, the people who work with me. When it was announced and it was all over the radio and everybody was talking about it, we yeah. opened a bottle of champagne at like 10 in the morning. <laughs> Dude, right. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Why not? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. But, yeah, it's a big um, honour to work with Kate. Yeah. Yeah. She was discovered by, uh, I hesitate to say discovered, but... She was certainly known of by David Gilmore from Pink Floyd. Is that right? He was a friend of the family. He was a friend of the family or something. Was that how? Yeah, she I think so. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I wasn't around then, but um... he set her up with a studio. Uh, I believe he took her down to Abbey Road, actually, oh. 
um, and they record, but he set all that up. Oh, did he? Okay. I think right. as early as when she was maybe 14, 15 or something. Right, right. She'd started early, right, yeah. uh, writing songs at a very early age. Very uh, in fact, I'll tell you exactly what it was, if, if I'm correct. Uh, David Gilmore told uh, some of the bigger producers to come down and meet them at Abbey Road Studios, he says, because I've got something for you to hear. And I think based on the fact that they thought it was a new piece of work by him, they all went teaming ah. down and then he went, there you go. That's, that's uh, and he played, good. and he played, uh, what's it called? Uh, a Child Inside. Uh, the man Arms with the Child in His Arms. Yeah, exactly that. That's the one. That's what he played. And he went, yeah, well, it's not mine. It's, it's this girl's <laughs> here. But that's how he got them down. And um, they also wanted her to release, can't remember what song, but not her, Withering Heights first. And she was adamant. She says, no, no, it needs to be Withering Heights. Good for her. A really young yeah. age. She had yeah. total creative control because yeah. yeah. she kept getting it right. Wow. Is yeah, that you, you found her to be a, a strong individual, Murray. Um, yeah, I mean, she's. We get on really well, and and um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I don't I don't tend to talk about her so much just because she's yeah. quite pro. No, no, it's not yeah, me, yeah, yeah. But she's quite a private person. But um, yeah, no, I mean, she's. Uh, I mean, it's pretty obvious, I think, from the way everything's presented, whatever that she's. Um, you know, she's got very strong ideas mm-hmm. about stuff. Um, and in fact, you know, a lot of the artists that I have been closest to have been people who forged their own path and, you know, like Kate and Radiohead and Petra Boys and Yoko and whatever. And I mean, there's more, but, you know, they, they've got a very clear idea of what they want to do. Yeah. yeah. Um, I do remember Murray being in the shop one time and saying, I'm sure I've got this right. He was either just back or just going to Yoko Ono's birthday party. And like we were talking about the Beatles and I was saying how great John Lennon was and everything. And uh, I said, oh, yeah, yeah, just uh, I've just come back from Yoko's, uh, I think it's her 80th birthday party, if I remember right. God, probably. I mean, I think she's this year is the first year that we've not all been together, actually, because of COVID. Mm, of course. Yeah, yeah. Normally she has a, a, a party in, in New York. So this year, I think she's 88. Wow. Uh, in February the 18th. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that will uh, probably I would have just come back from there. I mean, you're so definitely was... definitely the only person to have come to my shop and said that you've just come back from Yoko Ono's party. Could, could you imagine a normal standard <laughs> buyer from the street going, "Listen, to this guy, what a load of rubbish!" He's got yeah, Beatles no, album in his arm, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's a great example of someone who I admired a lot, and when. Um, in the EMI, they always used to shout out the things that were coming out yeah. at the weekly meeting. And one day they announced that she had an album coming out uh, on Capitol, which was their American label. And um, to be honest, no one seemed that bothered. And I piped up and said, you know, I, I love her. I want Can I work with, with her? They were like, yeah, sure. Um, and I met her and um, I told her that I knew her work as well as John's or maybe even yeah. that. Yeah. And uh, she was really surprised. And uh, yeah, we got on really well. I think that was like 1995. Wow. So that's 26 years. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and we got on really well. And, uh, you know, I've had some real adventures with Yoko, like going to Russia and uh, Japan. When we went to Japan, she took me to the, uh, summer house that she and John had in the country. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, I always wish she'd written a book because you know she just 
is so wise and uh, yeah, you know, her stories are incredible. She would literally just say, "Oh yeah, you know, when Andy Warhol used to come round, and and I would get close and be like, tell me that again." You know, <laughs> I, always, I always wanted to tape it all from her, and she just knew everybody. I mean, yeah, and yeah, then yeah. and Basquiat and. Uh, Peggy Guggenheim and and obviously everybody around the Beatles. I mean, yeah, she's incredible. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. that was yeah. a big thrill for me too. To Absolutely, work. Yeah. and she did have a good body of work of her own, of course, as you and it must have impressed her as you say that you knew it. Yeah, I mean, I I, I loved her stuff, and it turned out it wasn't hard for me because a lot of the people I hung out with in London were kind of like uh, uh, club people, you know, and and. So, for instance, when I think in along called Electro Clash, which was sort of like Fisher Spooner and stuff like that, um, I got Yoko to do like clubs at three in the morning, like yeah. really, really cool clubs just yeah. filled with a whole load of great people. And she would turn up and do um, Walking on Thin Ice or whatever. Yeah. But literally, you would just say to her, there's a really good scene in London and there's this club called mm-hmm. Mag Mag Mag. And it's like 150 of the coolest people in London. And you'd be on at 3 a.m. Let's do it. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's the new way. Yeah, yeah. And, That's uh, you know, I, I was doing the lights, I think. I mean, there was, <laughs> oh, what? <laughs> me and her assistant and turned up, they handed her a microphone. They said to me, here's the light switch, and off she went. Oh, wow. <laughs> Jeez. And then the great thing is that she she waited afterwards and she met a whole load of people that, that you know, I knew and journalists and stuff like that. And I realised then that uh, a lot of people really admired her mm-hmm. very quietly. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, there were people queuing up just wanting to meet her. Yeah. So, yeah, it's been a very, uh, very lovely thing for me. Yeah, fantastic. And um, you've obviously got, a, you know, when we look on your website, uh, which is uh, moneychalmerspr.com, um, it's definitely an impressive array of people you've got there. Uh, how long did that t- take for you to build up that client base? Um, I left EMI uh, 11 or 12 years ago. EMI, were, EMI went through a lot of changes. And, and when I was there, you know, they were always like, threats of them being sold and taken yeah. over. And eventually they were taken over by a company called Terra Firma. And somebody's even written a book about it. It was a horrible experience. They mm-hmm. were venture capitalists who thought they knew where the music industry had gone wrong and that they could fix it. And they came in and I, I hated them. I, I couldn't bear to be in the same room as them. And, you know, sitting in meetings with these people who didn't care about the music and the musicians and, one of them one day came up with the most stupid idea for Kylie Minogue that I thought was disrespectful. And I thought in the middle of that meeting, I'm leaving. And I tried to get made redundant because I would have got quite a lot of money because I'd been there a long time. Yeah, yeah. They wouldn't let me go. So I I, I just left. But the great thing is um, I asked Yoko if she would come with me. And she said, yeah. And then I asked... um, Radiohead, I think it was, and they said, "Yeah." And then one by one, everybody came with me. Yeah, so who, that I wanted. Who were these? Pet. Who were these guys that came with you? Well, uh, Coldplay as well. Yoko, Coldplay, Kylie Minogue, Pet Shop Boys, Radiohead. Uh, God, I hope I haven't forgotten somebody <laughs> from the early ones. Uh, 
anyway, it was a very good coterie of people mm -hmm. yeah. um, who, who to start off with, and it was just me in an office by myself. So, yeah. you know, I had no, uh, nobody to help me. And then I remember our first new client was, um, or my first new client was Brett Anderson, <laughs> who uh, rang me up one day. And uh, I used to follow Suede around, yeah. and, like, go to their fan club shows and just like, I, I loved them. Mm -hmm. And Brett ran up and said, oh, you know, he was making a solo record. And could I work on that? And of course, Fantastic. ultimately then, many years later, Suede got back together. And yeah, yeah. Back with them. But he was my first new client when I actually thought, Wow, I've got my own company, and you know, brilliant. Brilliant. Um, yeah, and then people like uh, Robbie Williams and whatever, and Noel Gallagher, uh, all followed. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. But well, did they maybe have a sense of uh, things happening at EMI that if you didn't like them, they probably wouldn't like them either? Is that maybe what they were thinking? Maybe. I mean, it's hard to say, isn't it? I think, for whatever reason, they prefer to come with me. I mean. I like to think it's because I was better than the options that were available mm -hmm. from the record company. And by then, the trust and the relationship yeah, and I built had a, up. I had a good reputation. And to be honest, although I, I walked away with nothing financially, um, I walked away with everything because yeah. I had a future. Yeah. And I had the, the great client roster, which really speaks louder than anything. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Definitely. If people look and see that that level of, that caliber of artists, they think, Wow, that's a company. And for a while, we were really like the you know when you're the, like the new kids in town, that's what you are in PR. You know, like you yeah. get everybody coming saying, you know, would you do our PR and all that. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's uh, obviously that levels off. Uh, but yeah, it was a really exciting period. Really fantastic. Good. And I felt great because I'd left um, a big company that I used to love, but I didn't love anymore. And I knew it was changing into something that. Um, I wouldn't like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the older you get, you've if you if you can, you've got to really try and live like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's, there's quite a, often a conflict, isn't there, between uh, the financial world and the uh, creative world? It's mm -hmm. quite hard to get the two to gel sometimes. Yeah, there is, and I was always even at EMI, I, I was always more allied to the creativity of the artist rather than the bottom line. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, you had to do your share, sure. uh, but I always felt more in tune with the artist than I did with uh, some of the other sure. aspects of it. I guess if you get that part right, the rest automatically follows in a perfect world. Yeah, yeah. And we had a brilliant boss at Parlophone. <laughs> you know, he, Tony Wadsworth, who made Parlophone uh, the best label at the time. I mean, if you think they had Supergrass and Blur and, and Radiohead, and yeah. Whatever, and so I definitely was there for the glory years, and uh, got a lot of happy memories of it. Yeah, but I didn't want to end up bitter and, and wishing I wasn't there anymore. Sure, yeah, sure. Can I just ask you a question uh, similar to that? Just, um, I suppose it's on integrity in many ways, or actually whether it's just relates to the success in the business side of things. But is there potentially an artist? that you would, in both ways, is there an artist that you would work with that you wouldn't like, but you liked or appreciated the music or the standard of their work that you would tolerate maybe working with somebody you didn't like, but equally, so also somebody that you loved so much that you would work with them, even though their sound was nothing you would personally get into. Is it, is it a personal, is it, is it a decision made from the heart or is it made up in the head, who you work it's with? Made, it's made from the heart now. It's, yeah. it's made from the heart always, but um, mm -hmm. 
it's a little bit different now because um you know we got bigger and, yeah, and we've yeah, got yeah. a lot of clients and at one stage we had a lot of people that we employed um i mean we've cut it back now you know as we furlough people and whatever yeah but initially the ethos was what i liked and yeah yeah and what i liked and people that were nice to work with because mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. you know when you were to emi most of the artists were really nice but occasionally you'd get one and you thought oh god i couldn't bear to be stuck in the lift with you you, know? <laughs> you would have to work with them yeah. still so when i formed my own company obviously that's one thing that you can control a lot yeah yeah, yeah. but to answer your question it's it's still from the heart but it's run a bit differently now because um you know, I love that Andy Warhol phrase when he said, you know, I've got to bring home the bacon. There's a lot of mouths to feed. And and at one stage there was. Yeah. And so I had to, uh, Sarah Henderson, who runs it day to day for me, uh, she is much better at the business side than me. Mm-hmm. I was always very intuitive. You know, I, I still am. I'm like the punk rock person that thinks I like that. I don't like that. Whereas Sarah can see through a lot of that and mm-hmm. uh, realize that some projects uh, would be really interesting. It doesn't mean that we don't love them. Yeah, yeah. It might mean that it's not me personally who's brought them in. Yeah. It's, sure. It doesn't depend on a bond with me. Uh-huh. For a while was was how the company prospered. But mm-hmm. it's, it's different to that now. I mean, we wouldn't do anything. We worked once with, a, we had this mad idea of working with influencers. And there was somebody, I mean, I, I can't actually remember his name, but I, Probably I shouldn't say even if I did. And he, uh, <laughs> against my better judgment, people who worked with me at the time said, we have to work with young influencers. And, you know, it's the way forward. Okay. And this guy turned out to be uh, a- an arsehole. Uh, <laughs> yeah. like, uh, I would say, well, if I'm not saying the name, it doesn't matter. But I, I definitely thought uh, misogynist and uh, a lot of other isms. And I said one day that, you know, it's my name, it's my company. And yeah. No, thanks. So, <laughs> you know, I still, uh, I still reserve the right to, to do that. Yeah. Did you see any good ideas that you did have that could have been used, though? Or was it just like, you know what, this just isn't how this part of the business works? I just didn't really want to defend someone who I thought, uh, I mean, it wasn't indefensible, but you would have to... I do want to keep some morals in business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think um, everybody thinks PR is about lying. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that is a perception that you just uh-huh, like, uh-huh. don't tell journalists the truth and everything. I mean, I I never saw it as that. I, I saw it as, um, I mean, I'm sure I've told fibs in my time, you know, um, like if people are trying to find out where people are in the country and stuff like that. Well, obviously you're not going to tell them. Um, But the idea of just using it to lie, I prefer to cultivate a relationship with journalists and then Mm -hmm. you can trust them and, you know, work with them rather than the other way. It's it's almost the way um, sales works. It's like, uh, instead of, um, I was a salesman and people always had the same perception Mm -hmm. that Mm money's just described. But actually, as you say, you build the relationships you get well, my old boss said forget about sales everybody yeah. at a big conference he said this we all put what what's he, is he yeah. <laughs> he's retired he says, forget about sales 
just get me customers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah. they have the sales inside them. That's it. And that was yeah. a, that was a great way. That's pretty much what you're describing, mm-hmm. I think. No, it is. Yeah. So you know, we are different now, and and you know, Sarah runs it day to day. Um, but I don't think we well, we certainly haven't got any clients that I feel bad about ethically or or anything like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know. you know, that's another, if I could ask just one more, because you're linking right onto a question I do have. So, um, and I'll, I'll name a band specifically just to see, because in many ways, I, I think you start, certain people, certain artists or bands could be a PR nightmare, even though they could be mega selling, very successful with the public. I don't know if that's anything you balance up. Um, but equally, I, I just sort of wondered how I mentioned Jerry Cinnamon before. I'd almost like to, because you, you, you seem like an old school punk. And I think punk or new punk is kind of on a little bit of a research just now. And in particular, you've got a band I've been a huge fan of. I've got all their albums on vinyl. And it's uh, a band called Sleaford Mods. Oh, yeah, and, I love them. Yeah. Ah, brilliant. I'm glad to hear that. But a lot of people, because they're they're brutally outspoken and they really hit on all the topics and everything, then a lot of people love them and a lot of people absolutely hate them, their style, their, their delivery and everything. But again, is that something... Not so much as you who loves them personally, but is that as a professional decision, would you go, do you know what? That might be a bit too risky taking on uh, no. as, a, as a client. No, we would rush towards them. With oh, them. really? I mean, yeah. they haven't asked us. I'm sure they, they've, they've, I don't know who does their PR, but no, I need no, uh, bands like that are, are like uh, my favorite thing. Yeah, they're, they're gold just now. They're brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, if you agree with their uh, message or whatever, Mm-hmm. Um, which I do, and also I agree with the principle of being outspoken. I mean, yeah, yeah, he's outspoken. We'll be in even deeper shit than we are now. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, I, I, I'm all for that. I, that would attract me. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Like, like a moth to the flame, drawn to danger. <laughs> totally. Well, like they're like the modern day punk poets, almost. You know, it's, yeah, it's quite yeah, a strange yeah. pairing. Yeah. I've made you listen to them. Yeah, I have, have and you I have, have liked some yes, of their stuff. I have. Yeah, I have. Yes. I think uh, the idea of provocation in music is really—it doesn't have to be all provocation, but uh-huh. I really like bands who who do that and uh, yeah, and being outspoken or whatever. I mean, if musicians can't be outspoken, you know, who can? Well, this is it. That's I mean, sometimes way. they actually spread the message for us all. I mean, there's another band, American band uh, called Rum the Jewels, and I mean, they 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 really the last album they just came that came out with RTJ Four um, was almost just perfectly ahead of its time to land on the beat of everything that was happening in the world, especially the the message about racism and everything. So they'd written that album um, before so many things happened. And in fact, in particular, before the George Floyd incident, but yet they've got lyrics in some of those songs specifically about those situations. So, I mean, they're just skating on thin ice of being ahead of themselves, but being bang on trend. But they've got everything that's relative to say, um, just about the whole social state of affairs that the world's in just now um and again they seem to get a little bit of hatred but then you've just got the people that know what the message and understand what the messages is i mean they, they want them to be basically talking on their behalf it just just all no, makes exactly. sense i mean i i think that for me a lot of artists who who are divisive i mean there's some who probably are divisive because you know they're they're giving out um a message that that most right thinking people wouldn't agree with mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. like uh, I mean, I'm thinking if it was a politician, for me, Jacob Rees-Mogg is, is divisive because I think he's, 
hideous beyond belief. But, uh, you know, and it's kind of everything that I personally hate. But the fact is for bands, I think, you know, if you go back to um, thinking a lot about right now about women uh, and, you know, because of what's going on right now. And, and, you know, I do believe that that someone like Lily Allen um, mm-hmm. did change things because she wasn't scared. She spoke about everything. Yeah. And she confronted a lot of stuff, you know, in the media and, I mean, in her lyrics and stuff. But, you know, things can change, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, even if you just change one person, you know, it's still great. It's still so, yeah, still- I love that idea of music. Mm-hmm. Um, to do that yeah i think we need more of it you know if, if anything back in the day we had a lot of it didn't we in the, like the late 70s there was an awful lot of it more more then than now in my old man's eyes maybe i'm not looking in the right place. well i think there was that real punk era or a real rock and roll era and yeah. then maybe in the last i don't know recent years i think people have been and I'm not even talking about the manufactured side of a pop band or an artist, but they've been so self-aware of what can be damaging and what can bring you more money, more followers, more sales. And they've just fallen into that. I use this reference a lot. It's like going bowling with a child and you've got those little side rails you can push up. Right, you know what? The artist is the bowling ball. Chuck them any way you want. They'll hit off the barriers, but just keep them guided going in that direction. They can hit a few nerves, but they're safe and they're going to get a strike or they're going to get some points, you know? And I think that was played too safe, whereas exactly now and more recently, a couple of years ago, so talking run the jewel sleeve yeah. about some of these yeah. people, they've just gone, you know, we don't care what's right, what's wrong. Yeah. This is our opinion. Yeah. These are the facts that we've experienced and we're not going to think about the repercussions. And that that's that's that's, that's true, true artistic integrity, yeah, you know. So. And I think if some people have a problem with it, then of course that's you know, we're all entitled to our opinion. You mm-hmm, don't mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh no, I mean, I, I I always love it when people say to me or oh, listen to this, you'll you'll love it, and you kind of have a sense of uh, somebody new, you know, saying something that challenges things or makes yeah you think, yeah. Um, yeah. When you when you were a fan of Susie and you were following them around and and really gigantically into them, and then am I right in saying you worked with Susie later? I did. I mean, we um, I, I met them in a gig in Reading, Reading Bones in 1978, before they were signed. And, you know, in these days, after a punk gig, you could just walk backstage and, you know, you'd be handed a beer and whatever. (laughs) Oh, true. And so I met them then. And I think, uh, and then two days later, I met them in Margate, uh, because I went to see them there. And I couldn't get home back to London. I had a and b in King's Cross. And they gave me a lift in their van in exchange for um, loading up the equipment. Jesus, man. Very different then. And then there was a long period when, I mean, that wasn't like a big friendship. That was just when I met. Uh, And I basically, to answer your question, I worked on her Manta Ray album, which is her only solo album. Um, And that was a very weird period because I was at EMI, but it was the dog days of me being at EMI. And I had two computers because... Radiohead were doing them in rainbows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a totally independent thing. But I was still working out my notice at EMI. And I always remember I had one computer for my EMI stuff, which just me wait counting the days until, you know, I, I, I was gone. 
and then another computer for my other private stuff. And that was Radiohead and then Susie. And uh, yeah, that was incredible. I mean, we, um, you know, we're friends now. I mean, we were friends then, but um, I did Manta Ray. And then when Yoko did Meltdown, um, Susie obviously was a big part of that. I mean, she played two sold out gigs. Um, so that was very exciting, but yeah. uh, mm-hmm. look after her now. But to be honest, she, I, don't think, I don't think anyone does. And, you know, um, but I, I talked to her quite a bit. And I mean, for me, who had her picture on my wall, you know. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Just, I, I kind of think, uh, but I think that about a lot of people that we work with, you know, how lucky I am. Who, who else did you have a uh, picture on your wall who you then worked with? I don't think anybody. Um, I think, no, just Susie. Because, you know, at that age, you put pictures on your wall, and then I guess when yeah, you're old, yeah. you know, um, I had, I had this collage of pictures, and I think she was probably the only music one, funnily enough. Ah. Or the Sex Pistols as well. Yeah, so. yeah. Did you ever meet uh, the Sex Pistols? Uh, I met Paul because we did his daughter Holly's PR. Yeah. So I met Paul. Um, no, I haven't met the other ones actually. Yeah, yeah. We just see Jones's book just now, actually, which is really enjoyable. Oh, that's uh, other people have recommended that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's well worth yeah. a read, I think. I didn't really, it passed me by when it came out, but I think because Danny Boyle is doing his TV thing. Yeah. Based on that book. That's and right. A friend, uh, a friend gave it to me, and yeah, it's, it's a really good book. Good. Uh, what are you listening to these days, Murray? Uh, I'm listening to the uh, test pressing. It's really annoying because I, I won't remember who it's part. But there's a, an indie label that's run out of Fife um, called, I'm even going to mispronounce it, Triassic Turk. Oh, I. Uh, Great anyway, name. Yeah, yeah. And the guy, um, when I was last there, um, it's great because he, he brews beer. He sells great wine. And he <laughs> runs an indie label. Jesus. He sells secondhand vinyl. It's like... Oh, and I think he sells coffee as well. Oh, that's one-stop <laughs> shop. You never need to leave. Anyway, Just needs anyway. to build a hotel upstairs. Because exactly, I forgot the name, but he gave me a test pressing of a record, and I really like it. it uh, it's a little bit like um, Sparkle Horse, who I used to work with, if you remember them. Yeah. yeah. So I've been listening to that a lot, thinking, could we help them in any way? And then I've been listening to Miles Davis. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm listening to a lot of stuff that's not rock, I guess, uh, right now. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Miles Davis and uh, quite a lot of classical stuff. Uh, Pavarotti. No way. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that, my friend. It's yeah, all music. Think, yeah, it's all, yeah, yeah. Um, so I've been playing that. But the other day I did put the Scream on, actually, on vinyl, the first Banshees album, which is my favourite record. Yeah. Ah, good one. Nice one. I blasted it out and I'm... Um, I'm lucky because I haven't really got any neighbours. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. Balcony doors upstairs, which is right on the river. And I stood with them, the screen blasting out. And I was, my mind was just racing, thinking of everything that's happened over the last 40 years. And it's incredible how music can take you back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Music is like a time machine. It's like a therapist. It's definitely like best friend. Yeah. Well, I remembered when I was playing the screen that... Um, because my mum was in hospital at the time, Auntie Kathy looked after us, 
and I used to play it over and over again, and my Auntie Kathy's summary of it was, oh, you get a lot of music on that record, don't you? Because she just thought... <laughs> You know. <laughs> she, she thought one song was enough <laughs> and I would put it back on and Auntie Kathy was going off her head thinking when is this noise oh <laughs> bless <laughs> no so yeah I was that. do you yeah. get a lot of recommendations do you like recommendations for listening to something different or new yeah I love it yeah can I give I, you one yeah please yeah I'll you rec- might have already heard of them and I kind of hope you have and I equally hope you haven't but it's a band called Audience and the album in particular, House on the Hill. Right. 1971. Wow. Yeah. Well, uh, this comes from, we bought a record collection. Uh, as you know, part of our life is selling, the other half is buying. So we came in back to the shop with a whole heap of records from uh, a lovely couple in uh, Ellen. And we're just going through it. And it was all the right stuff. You know, it was everything oh, yeah, from yeah. Led Zeppelin to punk rock. So you knew there were... They were proper proper listeners. Yeah. And then we found this record called, uh, we didn't know if the band was called Audience. That's right, yeah. But the cover heard. was great. We said, well, we don't know it. Let's stick it on. Mm-hmm. It just blew us away. We played every song all the way through, turned it over, did the same. And then we put it on again. And My colleague know. Ali, who's in the shop, the yeah. three of us all just sat like we discovered the Oracle. We just sat and listened to it. You know, oh, yeah, yeah. Served yeah. the odd customer. But we involved the customers saying, listen to this, guys. Yeah. And we did it for weeks. Oh, Christ. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, but we ended up having to put a sold sticker on it because we refused to sell the album. We only had a copy. We were like, now nah, we're going to keep playing this. Exactly. But I mean, the more and more we played it, when yeah. the, the busier the shop got. And I'm sorry, everybody out there, if you feel like you've been conned, if you've been into the shop. But they would start loading up more albums under the arms and two arms full of it. And like the heads would be going. And there's, yeah. there's very... It was it, magical. There's, there's not something magical about it. It's got that... Uh, but anyway, it's, it's also very funny because Lee said, you know what, I'm going to have to buy that one from you, Bob. I said, I'm very sorry, Lee. There's, there's no way we can... The only album the I shop. couldn't get my hands on. So, Lee, despite working at the record shop, had to actually go and buy one online. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> yeah, no, I've definitely got to get that. It's incredible how, you know, from that time, which is just before I was really listening to music, or around that time. But, you know, the Colin Blundstone album called yeah. one, one Year. Yes. I never knew it. And funnily enough, Neil Tennant kept, uh, well, not kept, he said to me, you would really like this album. And, you know, it was a total revelation for me. But then, of course, you've got to be clever because you think probably his whole catalogue is that good. And, yeah. and then you, you've got to really plow through a lot of stuff. But, yeah, yeah. I really love uh, Because, you know, the past has got a lot of holes in it because we mm. were, um, I think when you're young, you're very definite about what you like. And I definitely was. Yeah. And now I'm trying to be less definite. Um, yeah. yeah. David, my best friend who you've met, who lives next door, uh, his vinyl collection is incredible and it's so uh, wide as in taste. I mean, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. through there sometimes and just think, what is this shit? But he listens to <laughs> everything, you know, like everything. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, but that's that's great. So um, we we eventually got the audience on the podcast. Yeah. How, yeah. how about that? But Lee's a very determined critter. I think... Uh, I think you'd, you would recognise that. And uh, he just said, we're going to get them. We're going to get them. And he got them. Fair play to them. We got them. We had them on just like we're talking to you now. Yeah. It's fantastic. I'd love to listen to it. Oh, yeah. please do. Well, it'll be the very first episode that goes out. So, but um, what, yeah. what a couple of guys. Lovely guys. What a history lovely as guys. well. 
So I was going to ask Murray, because we've, we've basically asked all our guests, uh, we recommend something to them. It tends to be the one record. <laughs> it pretty much does, eh? Yeah. <laughs> but what records would you recommend to our listeners? Or new artist? New artist. Um, uh, just off the top of my head, but also he's brilliant. Um, one of the great things about moving back to... Um, I always say Dundee because it's near a city. I mean, I live in, I'm a Fifa, but, you know, I hang out in Dundee. Uh, and I discovered this guy called Andrew Vasilic, um, who was part of a band called the Hazy James. Oh. Uh, but more to the point, he made an album um, about Dundee, about a lot of abandoned spaces like Dundee's jute history and all that. Mm-hmm. And I'm making it sound incredibly dry. Not and it's, it's the most emotional thing. And it's called uh, Themes for buildings and spaces. Okay. I would recommend that. And also I notice he's just, he canvassed people saying, if I made more vinyl of this, would you buy it? And enough people said, yeah. So he's going to be putting it out on vinyl. Oh, fantastic. Excellent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a really good sense of Dundee and yeah, what was lost and, and all that kind of thing. It's really sure. fantastic. Mm-hmm. And if you to pick one album out your collection is your favourite, oh. I think you've already mentioned it. But yeah, the Scream definitely. Yeah, the Scream by Susie and the Banshees. The Scream by Susie and the Banshees, and the opening. Well, the opening track is called Pure, but then the real one is Jigsaw Feeling, and that's mm. my favourite song of all time. Really, album of all time. I just yeah. feel like when I played that, I could take on the world. Yeah. Like no one could piss me off, not like Jacob Reese Mogg or (laughs) (laughs) any of them. Uh, You you feel like you're 18 years old and you could just go around sorting everything out. You think you could maybe uh, get him to sit down under false pretenses, tie him to the chair, stick the headphones on, and just put it on loop for him for a couple of days? It might might turn out better. Well, I mean, a lot of that album is about kind of psychosis and you know. Well, I would quite enjoy doing that to him. <laughs> Brilliant. Be well deserved. Sorry, I apologise to any Tory mm. listeners. No, no apologies <laughs> required. It's all good. It's all good. Purely personal. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, buddy, it's been absolutely. Have you anything else you wanted to run through? I've got a very cheeky question. Finally. It's just just pure intrigue, and I am I am quite a huge huge um, oasis slash slash Gallagher fans Um, and that goes for both of them I've seen them both live I've seen the original Oasis live back in the day Um, I've seen two different incarnations as members left and came I've seen Liam Gallagher live in Amsterdam I've seen No live and I just wondered I I, I believe you represent Noel Gallagher you've worked with him now yeah until recently we worked with him for 10 years or something okay we don't we don't now know well, my question's now invalid, but I'm still going to ask it. So if you were still working with him, the situation if Liam Gallagher phoned you up and I was just wondering if maybe Noel had given you a brief on exactly what to reply to Liam if he phoned <laughs> you up or if there was just a cold rule of if he does, no, you can't work with him. It's me or not at all. No, Noel, Noel never did that. And, and nah. would that. I mean, I, I, and it never happened. I mean, uh, but if it had happened, then, you know, I wouldn't have done it because, well, just for various reasons, but it would have, um, it would have complicated. Yeah, yeah. Also, um, Noel is the person that, that I knew. Um, yeah. You know, and, I, and I got to know him. 
Um, so for various reasons, I wouldn't. But no, there was never any directive from. Okay, okay. <laughs> I mean, no Gallagher's pretty much a PR wet dream. He'd be great in any scenario with any journalist or any interrogation situation. Yeah, I'm sure he could probably work for the NAS, uh, SAS, you know, <laughs> anti-interrogation squad. Enough, when when we uh, when we were asked to go and uh, pitch to do Noel's press because he uh-huh. had something else doing at the time. Um, at the end of the meeting, I didn't know if it had gone well or not. And um, he was just like, great, so this is going to be good. And I was like, wow, are we working together? And he went, yeah. I thought, you know, we'd have to go off and wait and all that. Yeah. And I said, oh, okay, so how do you like to do interviews? And he went, you just put me in a room with a journalist, walk out and close the door, leave leave it to me. Is that what he said? Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's great. Really. And yeah. he's right. He's right, though, eh? Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that was a good, uh, but that's pretty much the approach we've got with all our clients. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, you've got good clients though. They, they seem to know what they're doing as well. Yeah, yeah totally. Got Is there it. any one person you do want to work with <laughs> that you haven't? Um, that you'd love to get I, on? I, a friend of mine who used to run the South Bank and so she did Meltdown Festival, whatever, mm-hmm. Beast. um, Whenever Patty Smith's name came up, because she knew Patty, oh. uh, I always used to say I would love to work with Patty. But I don't think she she either has no PR or she just like uses yeah yeah a company or whatever. And funny enough, I've met Patty quite a few times at your oh, wow. parties, but I've never plucked up the courage to say I'm a PR. I mean, it just <laughs> yeah yeah probably keel over if I was that naff. <laughs> well, it's one thing we can't accuse you of being one No, that. definitely not. It's, definitely uh, not. A, <laughs> <laughs> it's always a pleasure when you when you come up to see us and uh, you always get, Murray always buys a wide range. He was talking about his friend, but Murray also has a wide range of yeah, 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 anything. Yeah. It's hard to predict what Murray will buy. You know? oh, I, I like, love your like, shop. I mean, that was a real oasis and a major find. It was Stuart Buchanan who told me about it. Yes, that's right. Uh, yeah, I can't wait to get up there again. Hopefully, Soon, anyway. soon for the reopening, and got I, a hell I of a new stock in of, there. Yeah, but the end of maybe April, I think. I think so. Like it's yeah. coming, but uh, well, play by year. Yeah, play by year. And this is great. Thank you, buddy, very much for doing this because this really helps us keep in touch yeah. with all our people. You know, you're. Uh, it's a real pleasure to come in a shop where you know it's music fans kind of guiding you and helping you and being honest and yeah, whatever. So I think it's more than a shop, and it's a you know it's a really great place. So. Well, thank oh, you very much. We're going, to, we're going to put that on loop for the show. show right? <laughs> totally. <laughs> <laughs> no, never mind the rest of the interview, just that. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's brilliant, buddy. I really appreciate it. I know that you're a you're busy chap. Nice uh, Our pleasure. Our pleasure, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Buddy. We'll see you soon, buddy. Take care now. Yeah, take care. Hey, all the very best. Cheers. The best. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, didn't I tell you this guy knew a lot of people? In addition to that, he also knows us. But apart from that, I think he's quite a happy guy. What an incredible guy, honestly. As you said, so humble and no ego or anything. He truly left his guns outside, didn't he? I think it's like what we said before in the shop. The guys who have really achieved something, achieved that kind of inner confidence just from being great at what they do and achieved so much. There's very little ego involved and they're an absolute pleasure to speak to. We've said that before, but I think it's a common thread with our shop. We've certainly got no ego. In my case, I've got no cause to have an ego. 
So it's one of the things we feel kinder spirits with, people who just happen to love music, they get a passion for it, and this is what our record shop is all about. Yeah, we're just very, very lucky to have people that are coming on here that have had such great success and that are just so comfortable to take so much time to, to, to speak to us. Um, we couldn't be more grateful and it's all really part of a show that's building up and we will continue with it and keep trying to bring you more and more solid content with great names and great people to speak to. And with that in mind, it's time for me to say, wax on, wax off.